when I tell this story, because there's just so many facets to the story, I exaggerate a little bit and I say, I think the whole jungle probably heard me shriek. Because <laughs> I just have this like intense memory of just shrill, loud howl of, of pain. That is the voice of Ann Kovass. Now, you don't know her yet, but you will. And her tale, as it intersects with ours from a jungle in Hawaii, is the story for today's episode of the Stimulus Podcast. All right, so this all starts on a hike in Oahu. We're on a family vacation, and the kids just want to go hiking, see a waterfall, right? Hawaii, waterfall, jungle, hiking, full package. Now, jungles become jungles because they're wet. You know, there's lots of trees, there's lots of roots, and we start on this trail to the waterfall, and it's indeed rooty and wet and slick. So my wife and I are taking our time. Kids, I'm, of course, they're already a couple miles off the trail to destination. So just Melissa and I hiking in the jungle, and then we come to a stream crossing. I don't know, call it a stream, call it a river. And we're at the edge of this. We're thinking, all right, how are we going to cross this thing without getting soaked? And then we look at the trail beyond the river crossing, and there's this really steep embankment where people are getting down it on their butts, kind of sliding down on their butts. They're scrambling to get up it. And I see a woman who turns out to be Anne, who you heard in the beginning of this. She's in her mid-40s, looking super chill, she's walking down the trail and slips. I was wearing Converse, you know, not hiking shoes, no traction. <laughs> and so I was very conscious of every step. And so we were coming down the hill that would lead us to the, the stream that we needed to cross, which we'd crossed without problem coming over, didn't even get my feet wet. And so as I was walking down the, the decline, it was very rocky, very rooty. I was on the next to last step and I was looking at the stream and I was starting to think, okay, how can I successfully cross the stream again? And so that was the one step I made where I wasn't looking where my feet were going. Foot slipped out from under me, landed full body weight on my wrist. <laughs> Hurt like crazy. And I just remember picking up my arm and it's totally deformed. And I said, it's broken. <laughs> just to, to the air, right? <laughs> now that business with her arm and the trauma and what she saw, that's unknown to us. You know, at least at this point, I mean, from our perspective, she doesn't hit her head. She gets up, she keeps walking by all intents and purposes. She looks fine. So my wife and I cross the river and we see Anne. She's sitting in a pile of rocks, a little bit off the side of the trail. She's looking a little pale. We ask her and her husband, Hey, how's the rest of the trail? Well, says her husband, Charlie, she just slipped and broke her wrist and it's not much better the rest of the way up. Now, when someone says, I, you know, I broke something or this, you don't know what to expect. You'd think, well, maybe they sprained it or got a bruise or, or something like that. Well, Anne holds up her left arm and it looks like a Z instead of the usual straight line, a Z arm deformity. And we look a little closer and she's really pale and she's sweaty, not in the, uh, you know, I'm having a healthy day kind of sweat, but like, ooh, like a sickly sweat. Melissa gets down there. She feels for a pulse. There's no pulse on that left arm. None. Her hand is icy, cold, and white 
as winter snow. Okay, we're in the middle of the jungle. We got Anne sitting in the pile of rocks, not looking so good. She's got a pulseless, displaced forearm or wrist fracture. Whatever it is, this is not looking good. And before we go on with this story, let me take you back in time just a little bit because this is not the first medical emergency my wife, Melissa, and I have been involved in on vacation. And actually, to put that in perspective, you know, a lot of you write in saying how much you love Melissa's show notes on the website and all. Well, Melissa carries a full quiver of medical badassitude with her at all times. She spent many years as an emergency physician in the urban hub of Portland, Oregon, and also many years working in the mountain clinic at Snowmass, Colorado, treating fractures and high-speed blunt trauma day in, day out. So let me tell you, if you got to walk arm in arm to somebody into a remote location, medical morass, that's who you want with you. So about 15 years ago, we were in the Virgin Islands on this really remote beach. And by remote, I mean, you had to get there by hiking over a lot of rocks a long way, or else you had to swim to it from another beach. And so it's not like a road going up to it. And on this beach, there's a bunch of other tourists, some who were staying on this tall ship that was anchored about half mile up the beach. You could see it was beautiful, all these, you know, three masts and really quite something. And a shore boat, you know, something that looked like it would carry about 15 people was coming in to pick up the crowd. And the waves are really mild. I mean, you know, come on, this is the Caribbean. And so the people were walking into the water to get onto this little boat. And right then, what I can only call a sneaker wave came in. I mean, it was probably six feet tall. It was taller than me. And it flipped the boat, striking a woman on the head, a woman who's trying to get in the boat. It flips, hit her in the head. She goes under, she gets dragged out to sea by the undertow of that sneaker wave. And as a bunch of us run into the water, we grab her, we pull her on the beach. She was pulseless, apneic, and had this huge gash on her head, bleeding profusely. So there we are on this beach, middle of nowhere. This woman who just drowned, got a head injury as the works. And Melissa and I look at each other, we're like, holy crap. And I don't know which one of us started doing CPR, but we're on either side of her and we start, we take turns doing CPR and you know, have somebody hold her neck and hold pressure on the wound. Then this frothy, bloody vomit starts coming out of the woman's mouth. The captain of the ship, you know, who's essentially responsible for her says, hey, what should I do? And I said, I don't, I don't feel great about this, but I said, well, you, you know what? You should do mouth to mouth. So he did. And we resuscitated her for about five to 10 minutes. And she actually started breathing again. She wakes up, she comes to, this is coughing a lot of, you know, bad stuff coming out of her mouth that she's, but we're thinking, oh my gosh. Okay. So she just comes out of this drowning arrest and, you know, I mean, she's not doing great and still has this wound. Thinking, how are we going to get her out of here? What are we going to do? And just then, we hear sirens in the distance. I'm like, what the, what the heck? And this, I don't know, 15 to 20 foot long black cigarette boat with a spoiler comes, you know, hopping across the water, runs up onto the beach and these rescue personnel come out, the rescue team, and they you know, ask what's going on. They put the woman in a seat collar on a backboard, pop her into this boat within about two minutes, and they're off. And she survived. She did fine. So, I mean, so that's kind of uh, what we expect on vacation. So here, here we are in the jungle. So we've got Anne with her broken wrist, which is white, numb, pulseless. She's not looking so good. So 
Melissa and I say to each other, we got to get this fracture reduced, got to get a pulse back. I mean, who knows how long it's going to take to get out of here. So Melissa grabs Anne's elbow. I give Anne the fracture handshake with my left hand. I hold her forearm with my right. So we've got all of the leverage points to reduce this fracture all ready to go. Let Anne know what we've got to do, why we've got to do it. It's pretty straightforward, at least as logistics go and getting a fracture back in place. Of course, there's, there's no anesthesia. There's, there's no hematoma block. There's no sedation. And right around this time, Anne's hands and pretty much every muscle in her body looks like it is contracting and it's contracting intensely. She's going into carpal pedal spasm. She's hyperventilating. She is in such a state of total body muscle flexion and engagement, including the injured area, that there, there's actually no way that we're going to be able to reduce this without slowing her breathing so that her muscles will relax. Yes. Yeah. I was breathing out of control. I was um, freaked out. I was scared. I was in pain. I didn't know, you know, I, I had, I knew that you guys were there. I knew that Charlie was there, but yeah, no, I felt like I was hyperventilating, but I didn't know, didn't know what to do otherwise. What an interesting expression. I didn't know what to do otherwise. And it's, I, I find it interesting because it's really stuck with me since Anne and I made this recording because, you know, it's not like she wanted to be doing this. It's not like she was even in control of this. It just was, you know, some deep part of her body or her psyche or, you know, her cerebral operating system taken over. So what do you do? I mean, you know what to do when someone's hyperventilating and their muscles are all contracting and you can't control it. Well, all right, what do you can breathe into a paper bag that can slow it down give some medication to help relax? Well, you know what? No paper bags out here. There's no Valium or pick your chillaxing medication of choice. And this is a part of the story that for me has some really deep meaning. And the only way that Anne's breathing was going to slow down was if she was the one to slow it down, but she doesn't feel like she can do anything else. And you could see, I mean, you could see it happening right there. Actually, in fact, she looked like she was about to pass out. It was the, such intensity. So I got right next to her ear and I said, you and I are going to breathe together. And if you can, only breathe by the sound of my voice. Breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your nose. So when you told, when you, I mean, so much credit, when, when you told me, can we do some breathing exercises or whatever you said, because I remember I have like little windows of, of memory in there and I consented or whatever. I said, yes. And that was, that just took me off the brink, the slow breathing through the nose. Um, yeah, that kept me from passing out for sure. I have no doubt because it controlled my breathing so that I didn't feel like I was about to pass out. And two, because it gave me a point of focus away from, I could see my right hand that was clenched up like in a death grip. And I could, I, I could feel the pain, obviously, from my left hand. So having just that additional point of focus, physical focus and mental focus on my nose was super helpful. I'm going to have to say that it was pretty amazing to watch this play out in real time because you know, there was no other option, right? I mean, you had to get it relaxed. What's plan B here? And last year, April 2020, we had an episode called The Art of Breathing. The guest was Ryan Chaney. He's been on the show many times. And he went through all of these different techniques 
to create different states, you know, to upregulate, downregulate, calm, relax. And now you definitely needed to downregulate, right? That was, we, we needed to hit the emergency brake. And the specifics of the breathing technique, uh, it was kind of a circular breath so that as the exhalation ended, then the inhalation would begin. So it was just kind of like this fluid movement. There was no apnea. We've talked about that before, kind of putting a breath hold in between the inhalation and the exhalation to downregulate. I didn't do any of that here. I just at the moment felt like it was going to be a little bit much. So I would say in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, in, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. And when I could see that Anne was coming out of focus or not staying on the breath, I'd say, feel the breath move on your nostrils. Feel, feel your nostrils. And that, and that really worked. I mean, as, as soon as she came back to that single point focus, she'd come right back. And I'm going to tell you, it was so profound to be in that moment with her. And it felt like there was nothing else in the world happening during those four or five minutes of breath cycles. And ultimately, her muscles relaxed, looked at Melissa, we nodded to each other and told Anne. And I said something like, all right, now we're ready to reduce your arm or put it back in place. I recall you saying that it needed to be reduced. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I I had a feeling that I knew what it meant, but um, I was like, reduced, okay. All right, here we go. Here we go. It's going to put it back in place. Gross, strain and crunch. Arms back in alignment. Everything's straight. Pulse is back. Hand is pinking up and getting warm. Great success. So how'd it feel to have that wrist fracture put back in place? with nothing but deep cleansing breaths to accompany you? God, it was painful. (laughs) Oh my God. That was very brief, very brief, but um, very present. So I've had two kids and just additional side story. I actually got diagnosed last year with surprise breast cancer out of nowhere and then had two surgeries from that. So I thought I had a pretty good sense of what my maximum pain was, and I was wrong. <laughs> this, was, this was maximum pain. Yeah. So now we've got the wrist set. Perfusion is great. Excellent pulse. Hand is warm. We've got to keep it in place, right? I mean, who knows how long it's going to take to get out of there. Our first attempt at, our first attempt at splinting was with sticks and rope. You know, and some passersby had some rope. It didn't work well. That did not work well because the fracture was unstable. And after we splinted it the first time with the sticks, it fell out of reduction, meaning it became angulated again and extremely painful. The pulse was weaker. So we've got to figure out an alternative way to keep the wrist set because we're not going to be able to hold it in place for potentially hours on end, especially as she's evacuated. So Melissa pulls out her backpack and there appears a pair of Chaco sandals, Chaco, like Tevas or, you know, heavy rubber sandals. You know, it was like manna from heaven, or at least, you know, manna from splinting heaven. And, and what I'm about to describe, we've got pictures of on the website, and we've actually, we've got video of most of the stuff that's going to come after this. So if you want to see how this whole thing played out, what it looks like, you can head on over to the website. There's a link 
on the show notes for it if you're you know listening on your podcatcher. So we've got this pair of hard rubber sandals, a length of rope that we can use to secure one end of it. And then her husband, Charlie, says, hey, uh, can we use my shirt for anything? And he's wearing this beautiful, and I'll say extremely sweaty, Aloha shirt. And I said, hell yeah, my man. So he takes it off and we tear it into strips and we tie the strips together. I mean, it looks like bed sheets tied together to escape from a prison window. But let me tell you, that thing worked like a charm. But remember, the wrist has fallen out of alignment, so we've got to get it back into place, at least some semblance of straightness to make this splint function. So here we go again. We'll set it again. Sandwich it in sandals. Tie the rope rope, tie the shirt rope, and like butter. I will tell you, it is the most satisfying splint I have ever been a party to. <laughs> this is happening within minutes, but Fracture's now reduced again, and we look at Anne, and she's not looking so good. She's feeling pretty woozy, looking even more pale. I would feel like I was about to pass out. I would feel like I would feel myself leaving, and and sort of panic, at, like at this like half um, losing all control and half panic of the feeling of a being about to lose all control, lose all consciousness. She's not hyperventilating at this point, and we're figuring. Yeah, her blood pressure's got to be really low, and she's already lying down on the ground, so what are we going to do? And good fortune here, we got some help from a local nurse who at that time just happened to be hiking by, and we asked her if she could hold Anne's legs up. Melissa and I were still on the ground at this point, supporting the broken arm. And I'll tell you, getting those legs up really speaks to the value and effect of leg raising on getting blood back to the heart and brain, because within a minute of leg raising, mentation improved, Anne's color improved. It seemed to settle the whole situation. And then I felt that I was dizzy and discombobulated, but I wasn't on the verge of passing out. It was the thing that was keeping me from passing out in my mind. That was fast forward about 20 minutes or so. And you know we can't get a cell signal. No one can get a cell signal until... The sister of the nurse who's helping us out gets a signal kind of like 20 feet away. I'll have to say, we all had AT&T and she had like, I think, T-Mobile. So there you go. I guess the commercials are true. And calls EMS. So they're on their way around this time. But then Anne starts hyperventilating again, going into the carpal spasm, which then puts more pressure on the fracture. And she looks like she's going to pass out. I mean, things are starting to go downhill. And Something really interesting happened right at this moment that I think speaks to something that is often done in emergency situations. It's done in emergency departments, I know. I've seen it many times. I've done it many times. It's, it happens in doctor's offices and, you know, just there's anywhere. And that is using distraction to take someone's mind off of what's going on, right? I mean, it, it seems like it has face validity, but watching it play out and I could see just how ineffective it was. And when I think back to all the times that I've used distraction, I've been around when distraction's being used, it just, it just doesn't work. Maybe, I don't know, maybe one, one out of 20 times it does, but breathing, that really worked. So th this was one of the big takeaways for me and you know how to really calm someone under duress or stress or, or pain. So let me, let me paint what's going on. Anna's hyperventilating and Nurse T, who's been assiduously holding up Anne's legs, 
and has frankly been an extremely comforting voice the entire time, like just the voice of chillness. She sees what's going on and she says, oh, and do you have any dogs? Well, what kind of dogs do you have? What are their names? Do you have any kids? Bread and butter distraction. But as I said, you know, it just, just usually doesn't work. And for Anne, it definitely didn't work here. That doesn't, that didn't help in the circumstance. <laughs> so Anne says, hey, T, I appreciate what you're doing. And I'll tell you, she really had the presence of mind to be polite. She said, I really appreciate what we're doing, but I don't want to talk about my dogs right now. Can we just go back to the breathing? And you know, I'm not trying to present myself as you know the hero or whoever was right here. It was frankly just a wonder as to how this all played out and the power of presence rather than distraction. So we did that. We went back to focusing on breathing. Cycles in for four, out for four, in for four, out for six, only breathing through the nose, focusing on the air, moving across the nostrils. And that kept Anne calm until EMS ultimately arrived. And it turns out that they had a back road into the jungle. <laughs> so they walk down the muddy hill and they take over. We let them know what's going on. And Melissa says to the captain, says, hey, you got a guy's just going to carry her out of here, you know, carry back to the ambulance. And he says, there is no way we're going to be able to walk her out of here with how muddy it is, how she's doing right now. So we're talking to ourselves like, how is this going to work? And we hear the EMS captain and mad props to Honolulu Fire, man, because they, <laughs> they really ran the show here. So the captain calls in a helicopter. Now we're in the jungle. It has a legit canopy as jungles do. And we're, saying, we're looking at us like, where is a helicopter possibly going to land? And he points over to this little clearing, barely big enough to fit a helicopter. And so I'm thinking, whoa, this is going to be something. So about 10 minutes later, rescue helicopter flies in and starts hovering over this little clearing and then starts descending below the canopy. I'm thinking, oh my God, is this thing going to land? And just then the rescue paramedic comes out the side of the helicopter and ropes down, looks probably about 100 feet into some heavy brush, walks across the river, meets with Anne and the Honolulu fire medics, and gets the history. And then he and the paramedic crew carry Anne back across the river and into the clearing. I'm going to tell you, all of the video of all this is in the show notes. They go up another embankment, right below where the helicopter's hovering, and the rope or the, the cable still hanging there. And there's a blue harness or a sling. It looks like a big blue diaper ready to lift Anne out of there. But I'm watching it play out. And it, it does not look like an easy task. I mean, they are hiking into some thick brush. And there were thorns. There was like some sort of thorny bush. So I was actually more aware. I wasn't aware of the, the sling or him even really. I was trying to get the thorns out from my leg. And thinking as he was telling me what to do, that I needed to get them out before I got carted up because that was going to hurt. <laughs> Helicopter's hovering, been there for a while, about 100 feet of cable hanging down. Blue sling is just kind of flapping in the wind and Anne and the rescue medic look like they're having some kind of conversation. Um, so he told me that he had this sling, it's called a diaper sling, you know, because it looks like a diaper, you know, it comes um, in the back and then the front. and all I remember is him saying that he has a sling and he's gonna, I needed to like, they were gonna wrap it around me. And then I needed to sort of squat down into it, you know, in order to get in it. And then he was gonna hook it to, he had this carabiner that he was gonna hook it to the cable. And then he was gonna hook himself 
to face me, and then we were going to lift off. The medic gets Anne into the sling, clips himself to her, or clips himself in, and the two of them are raised, and they go up, 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 hundreds of feet in the air, you know, maybe 500 feet, and I'm thinking, oh, I guess they're going to winch them back into the helicopter, and then they'll ride that way. Nope. (laughs) That's not what happened. The helicopter took off, and it looked like they took off with the afterburners, and Anne and the medic are dangling below this thing, you know, about 100 feet below. I mean, they're actually a little bit behind the helicopter because, you know, it's, they're, they're kind of dragging <laughs> dragging back. I'm thinking, oh my God, she must be scared out of her wits. Nope. It was amazing. Honestly, given the circumstances, it was, it was really wild. I never saw the helicopter because um, I wasn't looking up. I just got pulled out and like the wind was blowing, but it was so cool. I mean, I had this amazing view. It was, I had this 360 view of, of the jungle and, you know, Honolulu in the distance. And, you know, I was trying to like adjust my arm to keep it in tight because um, the sling was sort of pressing against it, but there, were, I had no fear associated. It was awesome. I mean, it was maybe four minutes, I want to say. I don't, I don't know. Like, obviously, my sense of time is pretty messed up in this whole thing. But I remember um, being aware enough to really appreciate it and appreciate that of all the crappy things that were happening, that this was wild and cool. And it was sort of like, so I'd been parasailing a few times um, and I've been skydiving once in my early 20s. And it was sort of this combo skydiving, parasailing thing. And it, and it was wild and it was really cool. <laughs> they brought me over. I think there was a golf club right by that area, like a golf course. Um, and so they, there was some sort of, I don't know, tennis court, basketball court, some sort of flat surface. And there was a fire truck an ambulance, maybe two ambulances, I don't remember. And they just gently um, lowered us down. And the paramedic told me to put my feet out because I was going to be landing on my feet. And someone else that was on the ground came behind me and sort of guided me down. And and then I was standing and the sling fell off and, and they walked me over to the ambulance. And off to the local emergency department, she goes. And while she's having that flight out and getting into the emergency department, we're still in the jungle with a bunch of people who have been now watching. Our family has come back. We're all hanging out. And Anne's husband there, and he very graciously says, hey, if there's anything I could ever do for you guys, which is you know, related to his profession or just in general, you know, please let me know. I feel indebted to you. And we thank him for that. And you know, we, we chat a little bit. We go our separate ways. And Melissa and I were talking on the way out I'm not sure which one of us said, I think Melissa said it, you know, it was really touching what Charlie just said with that expression of gratitude, you know, and and offering something in return. And she said, you know, this experience itself, just being able to do this, that's the reward. It was, I mean, it's such a top of the mountain experience. We got to use so many skills, truly help another human being, not just physically, but emotionally through a traumatic event. And I'll tell you, you know what? There was no paperwork. (laughs) There was no charting. There was no EMR. It was just pure connection with all of us. And Melissa then said something that really resonated. She said, you know, in medicine, we expect nothing in return. 
Of course, you know, there's remuneration. You get paid for your job. But like we were talking about a few episodes ago on finding the joy in whatever it is that you do for work, those moments of wonder and connection and really getting to use your skills, sometimes beyond what you think are your capabilities, that, for us at least, that's the reward. And as the story goes, patient goes to the emergency department, fracture is further reduced, she's put in a legit splint this time, we did get the Chacos back, home to the mainland the next day and shortly thereafter surgery in her hometown. If you wanna see the post-op pictures on the website, they are there as well. And we connected many weeks after the event and she told me something I didn't expect. I thought this was so cool that the breathing exercises we did in the jungle, things to regulate stress response to really bring herself into awareness of the moment in crisis and accept the moment in crisis, that became a habit. Every time, especially in the first um, few weeks or, or around the surgery, when I would sort of cause myself pain by moving my arm wrong and I would feel myself starting to breathe in, like gasp at the pain. And immediately I would switch over to the slow nose breathing and it worked every time. It's rare that a habit forms so quickly, but I think it was, <laughs> it was so dramatic. It was such, you know, I, I credit it with keeping me from passing out that in the legs that I've been able to integrate it. And um, I know that I'll continue to do it for myself for physical pain, but it made me think, wow, this, I bet this would be really helpful, like in times of anxiety too, to have that just, it, it seems so simple. It seems obvious even, but sometimes you, when you're in pain, physical or mental or both, you need something really simple because everything else feels way too big, impossible even. That reminds me so much of the bold face that fighter pilots have in their training manuals, or I guess any pilot has in their training manual. You know, you've got the manual itself, which has lots of little detail, but then there's these pages that have just the bold face. What is the most basic thing that you can put on a page that will still get the job done successfully? Because all you remember in the heat of the moment may be those one or two boldface lines. We fall back to the level of our training. And this essential thing, that slow down, controlled, regulated breathing, that became her boldface. And there's a, there's a last part of this that you know, I, was, I was debating whether or not to put in because this was you know, kind of an adventure story talking about breathing and all the kind of craziness that happened. But at the end of our conversation... I asked Anne what would be her message for the listeners who are in healthcare. You know, it ain't an easy job on a normal day and normal days have been few and far between. And Anne herself has been through the ringer in the past year, first with breast cancer and now this. She actually has a job that is very much healthcare involved. She had lots of points of contact with the medical system. And here's the message. And I'm going to tell you, this is not a message for me. I asked her, what was her message for you? I've always had a really deep respect and admiration for, for people who go into serving people's health and medical and wellness needs. So, And I know that it's tough. 
the burnout is real and the logistical infrastructure stuff is is no joke and there's just so much information out there all the time and people coming in with their own you know thoughts on things and it's you guys juggle you guys juggle a lot you know and then all these you know reports and evidence-based practices and you should be doing this versus that and patient reported outcomes and are you doing the right asking the right survey questions i mean and then there's the people you know and then there's the the patients that you're interacting with who are you know probably often in crisis um and not on their best <laughs> not in their best moments and and family members who are experiencing that crisis for them so just mad props to you all keep it up please because we need you you know what you're doing is really really just critical and that is it for today for complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode just go to our website stimuluspodcast.com there you can also sign up for our newsletter if you are interested in our IMALS fundraiser, there's a link to it in the show notes as well. Didn't talk about it on this episode, but we still got it going on. You can subscribe to Stimulus and pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all those reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Now, if you have a request for the show or a topic, or you feel like something is really missing, just contact me through the website. No need to put that in the reviews because if you send me a direct contact, then I can respond to you. All right, until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.